here. The red is the positive terminal, and I'm going to put that over your left forehead. And the black is the negative terminal, and I'm going to put that over your, your right forehead. And the electricity is going to run from between the positive, them through my head. From the positive to the negative. This is me in the laboratory of Marone Bixen. He's a professor of biomedical engineering at the City College of New York, and he's attaching electrodes to my forehead. Professor Bixen's about to run a couple milliamps of electrical current through my skull. Craig, your head is the circuit, because if you think about it, right, the, the, the electricity will arrive at one sponge. And after that, it's just your head. So it has nowhere to go. It has to cross into your head, flow through your head, and then you have a worried look on your face. That did ramp up my anxiety when I thought about it that way. They, they, here's, one, here's a wire. Here's another wire. Electricity's going to go through those wires. And the thing that it's going to go through is, is me, my brain. Right. Right. Do you want to feel it on your arm first? Sure, let's do that. Professor Bixen first became intrigued by brain stimulation when he was a student and he was studying epilepsy. And he found out that a seizure is like an electrical storm in the brain. That idea fascinated him. Nowadays, Professor Bixen designs medical devices. And some of those devices are battery-powered caps that you can wear on your head. The caps give off about as much electrical current as a 9-volt battery. In some cases, it could look like a swimming cap with little knobs in it. And those knobs press onto the scalp. Each one of those knobs has a wire coming out of it that connects to a little computer. And by controlling how much current is sent to each knob, you can direct the electrical energy to different parts of the brain. He's hoping that using this kind of cap might do things like help people recover faster from a stroke. So really our our mission is to reduce human suffering with technology. And we work with all kinds of technology, um, including brain stimulation devices. So this whole field of building sort of interfaces between our bodies and electrical devices seems to be a very hot topic at the moment. Yeah, we can treat chronic pain by sending low voltage through our spines. We can treat Parkinson's and depression by shooting electricity into our brains. And there are these slightly wackier ideas about creating electric brain interfaces where we can digitize our thoughts. Yeah, I suppose if Elon Musk has a crazy startup doing something, then that kind of tells you, A, it's crazy, and B, it might turn into something. And he has this he has this company, Neuralink, um, basically because he's read lots and lots of sci-fi novels where people can sort of think their thoughts into computers and he, he wants to make that real. But the stepping stone to that sci-fi future is therapeutic uses today. It, it feels really cutting edge, but actually we've been putting electricity into our bodies for thousands of years. This is Scribonius Largus, right? The, Mr. Uh, Largus to you, Tom. Uh, Mr. Largus. You wouldn't say Mr. Caesar, would you? Um, <laughs> it's 50 AD. This guy, Scribonius Largus, writes this passage. It's one of the few records we have of this. But apparently the Romans were taking a torpedo fish, which is an electric fish that lived in the Mediterranean, uh, and they would hold it to their heads and let it zap them to treat a migraine because it would, it would numb the brain. And he even suggested you maybe you should have more than one torpedo fish on hand to treat the migraine in case the first one wasn't enough. Well, you can grab another torpedo so fish like, and give it another shock. It's like when you take an aspirin and it says, you it's know, not enough. children under more. 12, take one torpedo fish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Adults take two torpedo fish. Now, this sounds pretty wacky, but um, Mr. Lago says you insist on calling him. My mate Scribonius um, was, in fact, the physician to the Emperor Claudius. So he was someone whose word was taken seriously and was expected to know what he was talking about. And it seems that the Greeks also used torpedo fish essentially as an anesthetic. If you're having to do an operation on someone, you zap them with a fish first and then, then you get on with it. 
I wonder how they did this. They, do you think they had to keep the fish in tanks? <laughs> um, I presume you have to like recharge them. So it's like, oh yeah, I used that one earlier. So you have to let it recharge. I mean, this has been a fascination from then, then through Vic- the Victorian era. People, I mean, electricity, people just always thought it could do magical things to our bodies. From the past where we're like just zapping ourselves and it's incredibly rudimentary to the present where we're starting to put electronics in our brains. We've always wondered how electricity could heal us and maybe even transform us. From Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. And this is The Secret History of the Future. Uh, I guess, well, I mean, uh, every kid knows about electric fish in the same way that they know about dinosaurs or sharks or other kind of cool animals. William Turkell is a professor of history at the University of Western Ontario. He was into electric eels when he was a kid. And as a grown-up, he wrote a book about how our ancient ancestors' first way of understanding electricity as a force in the universe would have come from being shocked by electric fish. The thing is, is that electric fish have been part of the environment that humankind evolved in in Africa from before the time that there were even people. So they must have been a salient feature of our pre-human ancestors' environments because they, they shared an environment with these strongly electric catfish for at least a couple of million years. There are depictions of humans being zapped by electric fish as far back as ancient Egypt. Some of them are quite realistic. There's a famous image of a man standing in a boat with a barge pole, and he's making contact with one of these electric catfish and is obviously being shocked by it. Because human beings are the way that we are, we didn't just let the fish electrocute us. We tried to figure out how could we use this weird superpower that the fish has as a tool for our own ends. The exact details are lost in prehistory, but we know in historical times that people used strongly electric fish for uh, medical purposes. They would use the shock of the fish to treat things like migraine headaches, uh, prolapsed uterus, prolapsed rectum, that kind of thing. And so there was an idea that the shock itself could help you with certain kinds of ailments. What made them think that electricity could cure a migraine? Uh, I'd have to say probably trial and error. Tom, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm not enough of a risk taker to, to just be like, what happens if I take this electric fish and hold it on my head? Trial and error seems like a, 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 a dangerous way to go about making technological advances. I know what you mean, but I'm sure what happened in this case is, you know, there's someone who's got a migraine and one day they happen to get zapped by a fish and then they go, wait, it's cured my headache. And so someone's going to notice these things and then it's going to get around that if all else fails, try an electric fish. If it weren't for the ingenuity of human generations since then, we might still be hatching electric fish in our bathtubs to use them as aspirin. But instead, we looked for other ways to store up the mysterious force of electricity and to release it on command. We wanted to mimic the fish's electrical system. For the longest time, they didn't know how that system worked exactly. Was it poisonous? Was it a vapor? Was it some kind of occult quality? Was it something like magnetism? People had tons of theories for how this might work. But it wasn't until the development of a device called the Leiden jar that people had a physical device which worked pretty much like the electric fish work. 
It was invented by a Dutch scientist around 1745 in the town of Leiden. Tom, are you familiar with the Leiden jar? I am because of its its role in actually the early history of communications, but it's a primitive sort of battery. And unlike a modern battery today that delivers uh, electrical current in a very sort of even way, a Leiden jar is basically a sort of bucket of static electricity, and it all comes out in one big zap. You know, at this time, people were doing all kinds of crazy things. Yeah, well, basically, as soon as we get the Leiden jar, we use it to shock people. Well, the funny thing is, is that the fellow who uh, discovered the Leiden jar wrote this letter, and he said, you know, I've encountered this terrible thing and it it hurt me so bad and you should never ever try this and the letter circulated around Europe and people read this letter and of course everybody had to build one for themselves and try it on themselves. They would try uh, putting the the two leads into their nostrils. One fellow pushed them up into his uh, sinus cavities which he described as quite awful. One fellow put them in his ears and described a sort of sound like crackling paste burning inside of his head, wakes up with blood on the pillow the next day. Like, I mean, these they did fairly extreme things to themselves along the way of trying to figure out what these devices could be used for or what, what their effects were. One of the people who experiments with Leiden jars early on is the American founding father and scientist, Benjamin Franklin. He was trying to demonstrate to everyone that torpedo fish, lightning and Leiden jars were all doing the same thing, which hadn't been obvious before and was quite controversial at the time. And he then moves on to doing these experiments on people who've lost the use of one or more of their limbs. He gives them shocks to make the limb move, and then he tries to see if that improves their ability to move the limb themselves. And he pretty quickly concludes that it actually doesn't help. But other people pick up the ball and run with it and say, well, maybe we should be using electricity as a therapy. Right, and so in 1780, this Italian doctor, Luigi Galvani, discovers that he can make a dead frog's legs twitch when he touches the nerves with electricity. And that's where we get the term galvanizing. And this is the beginning of us understanding that electricity flows through animals and humans' nervous systems. By the time of the Victorians, people thought that ability could be used to cure just about everything. So there are long lists of dozens, or in some cases hundreds of ailments that all can be cured by the exposure to an electric shock. So a lot of those Victorian-era claims, they're pretty dubious. But by the middle of the 20th century, some of these things that were fantasies, they're actually becoming realities. And and we start testing them. We start getting pretty reliable results. And, and at this point, we can actually use electricity to help people. Yes, the thing that's changed is that we've got the apparatus to kind of evaluate whether a, a, a treatment is, is quackery or whether it actually helps people. And we've got scientific method, randomized controlled trials, p-values. So we do have this way of figuring out whether there's real believable evidence uh, that these treatments work. And in some cases, for some people, they do. I was incredibly ill with depression. Um, I also had anorexia and I was self-harming quite a lot because I felt so desperate. Um, I was also behaving dangerously because I was trying to end my life Um, and just things were getting worse and worse. Frances Coleman Williams was battling severe depression and she tried lots of different drugs but they weren't doing anything for her. Lots of antidepressants, um, SSRIs, tricyclics, old ones, new ones, all sorts of things and absolutely nothing was working. Um, So yeah, it kind of felt a bit hopeless. (laughs) When she was at her lowest point, she was given a series of ECT treatments. ECT is electroconvulsive therapy, and it is the treatment where electrodes are 
placed either side of your head and an electric current is passed through the brain. In popular culture, ECT gets associated with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that 1975 movie where Jack Nicholson is a patient in a mental ward and he gets turned into a drooling idiot after he gets treated with electric shocks. But these days, ECT is used in more controlled therapeutic settings, and it's proven to be very effective for some people when it comes to healing depression. There are side effects, things like memory loss, and studies are still being done on the long-term risks of those. But for some people, like Francis, the risks are worth it, and the treatment can perform miracles. So what ECT did for me was bring me out of that absolute darkness, um, and it, it did save my life. We know that ECT induces seizures in people, and somehow that electrical storm in the brain helps with depression. But doctors don't really understand how it works. We so often find that people from many thousands of years ago have done treatments they knew nothing about, but they had faith in. And so we sort of worry about not knowing what it is, but actually if it worked back then and it's working now. We can harness electricity now to treat things like depression and Parkinson's disease and epilepsy, but how electric shocks work on the brain is only partly understood, and it doesn't always work on everybody. Basically, there's still a lot of mystery around the medical uses of electricity, like there's always been over the centuries. When you don't know how something works, it also means you don't know what the the possibilities of it are. So you kind of imagine it could do all sorts of wonderful things that we just haven't discovered yet. It could do anything. But that's kind of, that's kind of the thing about electricity, because it is so mysterious. We just don't know what it could do, and we keep wondering if it could do something extraordinary that we haven't hit upon yet. So we've got the Victorians, then, who think electricity is a panacea, and they're trying it for all sorts of medical conditions. Did they get it to actually do anything useful? They did. They did. There was um, electrosleep was uh, this way to induce unconsciousness in you using electricity. Um, electroanesthesia, they could numb you with electricity before a medical procedure. Electricity was one of the main ways we had to intervene in your body's systems back then. But then we gave up on all of that. Was it because it didn't really work? It was more because we invented drugs. Uh, so when modern pharmaceuticals come onto the scene, at that point, they're more reliable and safer than electricity was uh, for, for medicinal purposes. And so we kind of forget about using electricity in a medical setting for a while. If you're going back 100 years and you're asking what is electrical stimulation used for, it's kind of useful to realize, well, what were the alternatives? And there weren't any. Here's Marone Bixen again, that professor who put electrodes on my forehead. We hadn't sort of had our drug revolution yet, right? We weren't pushing pills for everything yet. And so much like today, you have many neurological and psychiatric disorders where you just don't have any other options. After drugs became ubiquitous, there is this split that happens, and the pharmaceutical industry becomes respectable and legitimate, and those treatments involving electricity start to seem quackish and antiquated. There was undoubtedly quackery, but... You know, I think snake oil was a chemical, not necessarily electrical stimulation device. So there, there was plenty of quackery to go all around. The reason right now we run such controlled clinical trials, the way we're, the reason we're so careful, 
and in the claims that we make as scientists and, and clinicians is we want to avoid that that quackery trap, right? We want to make sure that everything we say is evidence-based, verified, and, and, and certainly true. So the big reason that electricity fell out of favor was that at the time that the drug revolution is happening, we still can't control electricity all that well. And it's only as we master electricity that we start to think about it again as a way to do amazing things to ourselves. Here's Professor William Turkell again. Until relatively recently, we probably didn't have the sense of using it for enhancement that we now have. And partly that depended on much better instrumentation for figuring out how electricity actually worked and what it was actually doing in the human and animal bodies. But it also depended on the 20th century development of electronics. So electricity is the movement of electrons. Electronics is the creation of devices that can use those moving electrons to do useful work with. And so until we were able to build devices that started to take on human perceptual or computational uh, kinds of characteristics, the idea that, that you could do something with electricity other than zapping things was not really there. We've been talking about ways the Romans and the Victorians and even in the 20th century, we use electricity as a way to restore function, to heal, to help someone with Parkinson's or epilepsy or depression. But increasingly, what, the way we think about electricity is as something that maybe could do something more for us, something magical, to, to let us do things with our bodies or our brains that we've never done before. One of the ways I like to think about electricity, especially prior to the 20th century, is that it's a resource that allows people to investigate things that, that they're very curious about, but which are otherwise, uh, it's difficult to understand how you might investigate them. So one of those things is this kind of boundary between life and death. Uh, when people first encounter some of these other electric species, there are claims that if you throw a living electric fish onto a pile of dead fish, it's going to animate them. It, it brings them to life by zapping them. We now don't think of that as a case of resuscitation, but the idea that this thing can bring things back to life gives people a way of exploring boundaries between being alive and being dead. So we keep saying they didn't understand how this worked then and we don't understand it now. Another thing that is constant over this period is if you go back 200 years ago when people are getting excited about electricity as therapy, that's when Frankenstein comes out and this idea that it can even revive the dead. Now that turns out to not be not be true, or is it? Because we have defibrillators these days and, you know, someone has a heart attack and someone drowns, things like that. You, you can bring them back to yeah, life. you shock them. So, so in some ways, the Frankenstein sci-fi sort of came true. And today we have rather more ambitious visions in sci-fi of what electricity could do to our bodies. You know, it could help us control robotic limbs or help us interface with computers. So we still have this uh, sci-fi feeding us these fantasies about the wonderful things that, that we could do with electricity. So what is cognitive electrophysiology? Cognitive electrophysiology is using electrical signals in the brain to understand how we think, how we remember, um, how we process information in complex ways. One day when Michael Kahana was a young psychology professor, he walked past a hallway of epilepsy patients who were part of a study at Harvard Medical School. The patients had all been fitted with brain implants to help doctors look at the electrical activity that was happening in their heads during seizures. But Professor Kahana wondered if anybody was studying how their brains were behaving while they were just playing Nintendo. 
And it turned out nobody was. So that's how he began to study the electrical signals that underlie things like learning and memory. And as he continued that research, he decided he would do more than just use those brain implants to receive signals about what was happening in the mind. He would use them also to send electricity out into the brain to stimulate it. So the idea was, well, if you could disrupt memory with brain stimulation, which was known, could you perhaps figure out some way to enhance it? And there were a couple of patients where we saw enhancement, and it almost seemed accidental. Well, was that, a, was that just a, um, a blip in the data? Was that just a, a false positive, so to speak? Or perhaps are there certain parts of the brain when stimulated in certain ways you would actually be able to improve uh, how we think, how we remember, how we learn. Professor Kahana has discovered that if he stimulates a brain at just the right place in just the right way, he can help you remember things better. Which, of course, made me wonder, should we all be doing this all the time? Can you envision a future in which healthy people are all electively putting brain implants in their head? Yeah, I do. Uh, We currently are correcting our vision and uh, our hearing uh, as much as we can. And if we could make our vision and hearing even better, we surely would do it. So if the technology existed whereby we could enhance um, our cognitive functions beyond even their natural range of variability, then by all means, uh, I would like to see that technology used and I wouldn't want to deprive people of it. And uh, it it raises a whole host of interesting ethical questions, which I'm sure the ethicists will spend a long time trying to sort out. But given that there is a great need to address people's limitations, once the genie's out of the box, you can't put her back in. The modern promise of electricity is that it might help us exceed our limitations and break through them. Could these implants turn a dumb person into a person of average intelligence and a person of average intelligence into a genius? Well, that would be that, that would be the question, or would they turn everybody into a genius, um, right? And uh, uh, wouldn't that be nice? Would it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tom, this can sound kind of crazy. How how crazy is this, really? It may not be all that crazy in the sense that. People are getting very excited about this. Uh, there's a lot of money, a lot of investment, a lot of research going on in this area. And there are these systems where you put people in a brain scanner and you show them pictures and you can reconstruct what they're looking at, essentially by analysing what's going on in their brains. And that's an amazing result. Um, Facebook's building this system that the idea is you can type at 100 words a minute just by sort of thinking in a in a particular way. So it is being taken very seriously. You know, you can see why, because we started off interacting with computers using punch cards and then we moved on to keyboards and mice and now we use touchscreens and you can totally see though that the next interface is going to be some sort of brain interface and uh, it's cut out the middle organ exactly and sci-fi is full of this stuff there are I know they sound crazy but there are a lot of people taking this very seriously and putting a lot of money into this research so I know that you might need to be a little bit cagey about some of this stuff but we are in an office here outside there are people writing equations on whiteboards what can you tell our listeners about what you're doing here? Nothing right now. <laughs> we, are, we are communicating. It's, we're hard at work trying to build tools to interface the brain. This is Brian Johnson. He created a software company in his 20s, and then he sold it for about $800 million. And he took that money and used it to create a company called Kernel, 
They have scientific advisors from MIT and Columbia. And what they say their company mission is, is to, quote, expand the bounds of human intelligence. I care deeply about the future of the human race. I want us to succeed as a species. I want us to create an amazing future that is beautiful and better than we can even imagine. And I think the only way we do that is if we figure out how to radically improve our brains. I think one reason people don't want to talk about radically improving ourselves is there's a discomfort with that. We're humans, and if we start lopping off healthy legs and putting on robotic prostheses so that we can jump higher, or if we start putting you know invasive implants into our brains so that we're smarter, what does that make us? Are we still human? Is it a problem if we're not? There are some ethical issues around that. Fear of loss or, or loss mitigation is the very first thing people see. And so they think, what does it mean to be human? I'm going to lose my humanhood. I don't know very many humans who are very happy with themselves. So one, I don't know why everyone's so protective of being human when everyone's trying to inherently overcome themselves. But number two is, if we could talk through the fear of loss mitigation, the next question you might ask me is, you know, the Russian hacker's going to do this and like make something awful. The next thing you say is the government's going to do it. Like, It's not new that we're scared of the unfamiliar. This is how we're programmed. But once we walk through all that scaffolding of conversation, we would get to a spot where you would say, all right, like right, I'm okay to contemplate these things. And then you'd be in an emotional space where we could imagine together. And so when I say radically improve humans, I'm talking about nothing of which has been written about in sci-fi novels, seen in movies. I'm saying it's beyond our ability to conceive. That's where I think we need to go. And so for our listeners who are going to be baffled by this right now, what... What do you mean by that? Give them a picture of what you're talking about. Well, that's inherently the problem, right? Is I inherently cannot see beyond what I'm familiar with. But what I can say is, that, for example, like when I say that I'm building neural interfaces at kernel, and the conversation goes to imaginative states, like what can we do? People will oftentimes say, well, I'm going to text with my brain, or I'm going to. They think basically what exists today just one thing different. Like, I'm going to go, instead of use my thumbs, I'm going to use my, my brain. And I don't think that's the most interesting use case of what we can understand. It's like, for example, things I fantasize about is what if we could make studying physics as enjoyable as watching the Kardashians? Why is that out of reach? Like, can we, can we create new systems and new nudges that still provide people the same soothing, satisfaction, excitement, enjoyment? just doing different things. Can we be that creative and expansive in our tool creation? And I, I want our brains to go there. I, I don't think, as a species, we want to settle on the Kardashians as being our, our place where we allocate our brain attention. Brian Johnson sometimes talks about designing a neuroprosthetic, a prosthetic for the brain. And the idea seems to be a piece of hardware that could digitize your thoughts and convert them into computer-readable data and then put them online. Right now, you're the only person with access to your brain. You decide who gets access to your brain via your body language and your voice and sharing your ideas. But if your brain came online and now your brain data is available to interact with the larger societal realm, that's going to change how we deal with each other in all of society. It opens up all kinds of possibilities. Johnson's interest in radically improving the human brain doesn't just come out of this belief he has in the wondrous possibilities of the technology he's going to create. He's also kind of scared about what might happen in the future if we don't create a brain interface. No matter where you're at on the AI conversation, whether you think AI is like a, an imminent threat or whether it's over the next 50, 100 years, maybe never a threat, AI is improving very, very fast. 
Humans, on the other hand, are basically flatlined relative to AI. And so if AI continues to progress, like what becomes of us? As, as a species, we need to put ourselves on an improvement curve that is on a similar trajectory as our technology. And right now, we do not have tools to improve ourselves at that rate. He's really confident he's going to invent this technology that will help us keep up with computers. We'll put our brains online, we'll share our data, we'll improve it with algorithms, and then we'll feed it back into our heads to create this virtuous loop. And he thinks this will be an everyday thing. And what I'm saying is in 10 to 15 years, our brain interfaces will be just as fundamental in the part of our lives as our smartphones are today. Tom, I've actually tried a few of these non-invasive stimulation headsets. There was that one I tried in Marone Bixon's lab, and then I, I did this e-meditation thing where I went to a meditation studio and I put an electric headset on my head and it simulated my brain with electric current. It kind of stung a little bit. So your dedication to journalism is admirable. It's great that you've been out there suffering on our behalf. Experiential journalist par excellence. But now I'm going to turn you into my guinea pig because I have obtained this special electrical stimulation headset. Right now I'm dipping the leads what in is, water. What is that? <laughs> it looks like a kind of um, a very bad hairbrush. Yeah, so this is going to go against your scalp. It literally looks like you're putting a set of spikes into the inside <laughs> of a set of headphones, and then I'm going to put the headphones on my head, and the spikes are going to be pointing into my skull. Tom, so, do you trust me? I, I totally trust you. I'm sure. I'm sure it's all There's no totally reason above it's... board. Uh, okay, well, if you trust me, then just go ahead and put this on your head. <laughs> okay, start session. Amplitude 5. I'm just going to kick up your amplitude, Tom. I'm not even going to ask your consent. I'm just going to keep... It's only one ear. I've like got you at max amplitude bad, now. Actually, okay, now it's... Okay, now maybe anything? I can feel something. It sort of might feel slightly prickly and uncomfortable now. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. So let's let's talk about, as you have this uncomfortable <laughs> thing on your head, as you step into the bold future, Tom, with this tingle in your scalp... The bold future, in my case. Well, yeah, so let's talk about... So people are using these brain stimulation headsets with the idea that it's going to make them a better athlete. You know, it's going to train their muscle memory. It'll make them a better musician, or it's going to help their focus. They're going to become like a better stock market day trader. Tom, I know that you are an excellent drummer. Would you wear one of these headsets if you felt it would help you practice better? Yes, I think that if there was good evidence that, that if it worked, I would be... I'm, often got headphones anyway on my head when I'm playing the drum. So why not have some with these little spikes and uh, see if it helps me learn new things more quickly? I'd definitely be up for that. Yeah, we use all sorts of technologies to improve our bodies, right? So I'm wearing eyeglasses right now. That's a technology that helps improve my vision. People use cochlear implants. I mean, that's technology with electricity going into your brain to help your hearing. So in some ways, this isn't that new. I guess what's new is if it's about enhancement, and it's about making you more than you were. And so instead of making you the best drumming Tom you can be, it makes you into Stuart Copeland. Yes, and I think there's a question there about sort of equity, and is that fair that some people have access to this technology and will get better at things, and some people won't? And so it does raise some questions that uh, that simply restoring function with things like eyeglasses don't. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, though, like if I could put something in my brain and it made me Stephen Hawking, that is a tempting opportunity for me. Yeah, but it's also changing who you are really fundamentally. And, uh, you know, if your eyesight's not very good and you get glasses and you can see better, it's not going to affect your personality in quite the same way. So I think that's really where this is crossing a line. When we're, when we're messing with our brains and enhancing the function of our brains, we really are changing who we are in the way that taking Ritalin or coffee is not. 
And I guess the rebuttal to this is the idea that, you know, we invented cars and we don't say, well, humans are outmoded because we have cars and they can go faster than humans can run. What is what we do is we get in the cars and we sort of meld with the cars to make ourselves more than we are. And and with AI, the fear that AI is going to surpass us and be smarter than us, well, why don't we just sort of get inside the AI and drive it, right? Yes, I think that's the idea. And if the AI is actually inside us, I mean, obviously we get into cars and we're talking about putting AIs in our heads. So uh, that is quite a different <laughs> it's dri- thing. Is it driving us or are we driving it, right? Well, exactly. So I think that's the, that's the question. But what I like about that idea is that it kind of gets us past this debate about, you know, are the robots coming? Are they going to take all our jobs? Are we all going to be made redundant by machines? And it sort of recasts it and says, well, hang on a minute. What if we work together with the machines? What if we you know, integrated them into ourselves and we created something new. And I think that's part of the appeal for a lot of the people working on this, like Brian Johnson and Elon Musk, which is they want to sort of reframe the whole debate around AI. And what that ends up doing is, is again, raising these questions about what it is to be human. All right, Tom. Well, I think you've spent enough time with this headset on. You can take it off now and go practice your paradiddles. I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Tom Standage. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. Editorial help was provided by Gabriel Roth. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The executive producers are Steve Lichtai for Slate Podcasts and Anne McElvoy for The Economist. Next week on The Secret History of the Future. It turned out for four or five of these quotes... These were in major publications in the mid-80s, and they were outraged and disgust at this newfangled invention called the Walkman. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review so you can help others find the show, too. 